Hello, and welcome to Culture Exchanges, a podcast at the intersection of the humanities and cultural diplomacy. I'm your host, Terry Harvey, Vice President of the Meridian Center for Cultural Diplomacy. This podcast series explores the impact of the arts and culture on diplomatic relations across the world through discussions with cultural diplomacy experts. On this episode of Culture Exchanges, we speak with Christina Gaddy to uncover the history of the banjo and how its sound has developed as a result of cultural exchange. The banjo was originally created by enslaved Africans and their descendants in the Caribbean and North America, widely recognized as an African-American tradition with a West African heritage. However, the banjo heard in American music is a distinct blend of West African and European cultures that widely differs from the West African banjo sound. Ms. Gaddy is a Baltimore-based writer and author of Well of Souls, Uncovering the Banjo's Hidden History. Hi, Christina. Thank you for joining us. We really look forward to diving into this subject matter into more detail. I thought for our audience, we could first start with you giving us a, a glimpse into the early history of the banjo, when and where it was created, and how was it constructed? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I really love focusing on the early history of the banjo because I think that's the part of its history that often gets kind of pushed to the side and forgotten. So the earliest examples of the banjo that we have, both the physical examples and the images and descriptions are from the Caribbean. So one of the earliest descriptions and the earliest image comes from Jamaica in 1687. And that comes from a book by a man named Sir Hans Sloan, who was a British doctor. And he actually collected these two banjos and brought them back to England but since 1687, somewhere somewhere in the in-between, they've, they've been lost, which is really sad that we don't have that material culture to kind of examine. But he did put a plate, an engraving plate in his book that he published about his time in Jamaica and the Caribbean. And there we see how it was constructed. And that is basically the same form that it takes all the way until it gets a more modern form that we think of today with a wooden rim body. So those banjos had gourd or calabash bodies, which is not like a pumpkin that gets soft when it gets old, but it actually gets hard and makes a really nice resonating chamber. And that makes the body of the instrument. And then they had necks that were made of wood. They had flat fingerboards like a guitar. They had tuning pegs like a guitar. They had short and long strings, though, which is something that we see on African instruments. And then they had what's called a soundboard, which is basically the top of the instrument. Guitars, violins, cellos, all those European string family instruments generally have wooden soundboards, but many African instruments have the skin soundboard. And that is how this early banjo was constructed with many different elements of African instruments, but not replicating one single African instrument. Yeah, it's really fascinating how uh, just the basic materials that banjos are made of, you know, has a, a cross-cultural story in itself. So, you know, the history of the banjo is not just the Black American one, right, it, but one of the greater African diaspora. Can you speak about the global exchange that led to its creation? It just sounds like so many influences were, were brought in to, to the creation of the banjo. Absolutely. We think of the banjo as being this kind of quintessential American instrument and then beginning, I think, to understand that it has these African roots. But 
I love to look beyond kind of the modern borders that we have today, even though the borders of mainland United States, we think of as having been settled for a really long time. That's, you know, not necessarily the case. And there was so much global exchange that happened that I really think the banjo embodies. So we have these West African instruments, for example, a lot of people are familiar with the accounting when we talk about banjo history. But there are, you know, many different African ethnic groups and cultures that have instruments that are similar. We see a lot of those instruments kind of having direct attributes that the, the early banjos have. But we also see East African instruments that have similarities to the banjo. So a lot of folks think of the flat fingerboard and the tuning peg as must have originated in, in European influence in the banjo. But of course, North African instruments have tuning pegs and flat fingerboards. And then East African instruments where there were also people who were taken from East Africa and Madagascar, the kind of Indian Ocean region, were enslaved there and either taken from those East African ports, but sometimes if their home was a little bit inland, they could have even been you know, forcibly transported across the African continent to Central African ports. And so they also had musical traditions that we can't kind of deny would have had an influence in this early, you know, cultural, forced cultural mixing in the Caribbean. And then the other thing that we always think about is, oh, we have the United States and it must have always been the United States. But we look at places like Charleston, South Carolina, that was founded by colonizers from the Caribbean. And their laws were very similar to Caribbean laws and their culture, one would argue, is much more closely tied to that of Caribbean British colonies than it was of let's say, Massachusetts colonies. And we have places like New Orleans, which of course was French and Spanish before it became part of the United States. And within this movement of, you know, not only goods and people, we have the forcible moving of enslaved people of African descent, whether that's because they're being sold from the Caribbean in a port like Charleston, in a port like Annapolis, Maryland, and even in a port like you know Providence, Rhode Island, or New Orleans. But there's also lots of global things that happen. We have the Haitian Revolution, which creates not only white refugees who feel that they have to flee the island or uh, get rid of their personal property, which includes enslaved people, but free people of color who leave Haiti Saint-Domingue, Haiti as well, and bring with their enslaved people and settle in places like Maryland or Virginia or New Orleans where they can keep that property. So we really have a huge global exchange, not only between Africa and the Americas, but within the Americas that not only leads to the creation of the banjo, but African-American music, which I would argue then leads to the creation of kind of what we call quote unquote American music today. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, speaking further on that, you know, in your book, I'm curious and in, in the ways in which you had to balance discussing the horrors of slavery alongside the creativity and cultural resiliency of the enslaved and their descendants. I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, this is a really important question, because one of the things that I didn't want to do 
in writing this history was traumatize or re-traumatize any readers and discussing the realities of the horrors of slavery does invoke trauma um there are things that you truly don't you know want to read about or really upsetting to read about and i think that those are important for us to remember but i also didn't want to make that a barrier for people to read it where they thought if i'm reading this I'm exposing myself to that trauma and I don't want to experience that. I want to experience the resiliency of religion and spirituality of, over time, of music, of invention, of Black creation and resistance to the enslaved. And so I actually have a couple of you know footnotes where I say directly, uh, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> not describing what this person did or the situation in full and here's you know if you so choose here's the resource to go look at that but at the same time you know it's really important for us to remember that the history of the united states the history of the banjo uh, the history of american music that is essentially a history of slavery and oppressing people of African descent. And we can't learn about the history of the banjo without learning about slavery and how it functioned. We can't learn the history of the United States without learning about slavery and how it functioned. So even though I have that caveat of, of not trying to be grotesque with the descriptions of, of slavery, it's important that that is always there as an undercurrent in the book and the discussion of banjo history. You touched on the, the next question briefly there, but I, you know, one of the larger themes that you've captured so beautifully in the book is the spirituality of this instrument. You know, what is the link between religion, spirituality, and the banjo? Really fascinating. Yeah, this is the big reason that I wrote the book because we we always think of the banjo as being a secular instrument that because today we use it in secular settings for dances, for entertainment, that that must always have been the case. But of course, if you, you know, dig into African cultures in a, in a general sense, but then also specifically digging into African music, you see that it's very often connected with religion and spirituality. And so when we come back to, for example, you know, some of the West African cultures that have been studied in, in close relationship with the banjo, we see that the musical aspect of religion, I should say, is, is really important. And this is, of course, then transferred as we get new forms of religion and spirituality in the Americas, in this creolization of cultures where there are elements from Islam in West Africa, Vodou in you know, what is today Benin, in Catholicism from Central Africa and the Congo that's already been kind of mixed with traditional beliefs there. And those things coming together in in the Americas and in the United States is really fascinating. And, and that's where the banjo was a central part. These religions like Vodou, uh, Winti in Suriname, uh, and even Obeya in Jamaica, we're very connected to music and dance and the music that accompanied these ritual dances was the banjo and was drums and the banjo and drums together along with singing and maybe other rhythm instruments 
could invoke spirits, could invoke ancestors, could invoke gods and invite them, you know, down to be part of this ceremony with the practitioners. And that was something that looking back over the scholarship of the banjo, especially, was something that people hadn't been able to kind of see because the primary sources, which are written by white European or European descended men, couldn't see themselves. They had a very, you know, Western European view of what religion and spirituality looked like. And to them, the idea that you would be dancing, playing the banjo, singing, didn't connect with what their idea of a religion was. And so when they wrote their accounts of these religions, these dances, and this music, they didn't, you know, make that connection. Except in the few instances where those men were religious figures themselves. So one of the stories that I talk about in the book is a Moravian missionary from Germany who is in Suriname, the colony formerly Dutch Guiana, who destroys instruments, who takes a banjo, who destroys religious idols associated with the Winti religion that the banjo is a part of, because he sees that as an impediment to the enslaved becoming Moravians and accepting, you know, Jesus Christ as, as, as their God. And to have him see that was really eye-opening to me because it kind of really solidified this, that, you know, idea that I'd had that these were, you know, religious, spiritual dances and, and the banjo was part of it. But here was somebody who, who really thought the banjo is so dangerous um, because it's a part of this religion that I have to take it away from these people in order to try to save their souls. Wow, that is that is a powerful anecdote. I guess uh, speaking more broadly, I would love to hear your thoughts on on really the contributions the banjo has made on music. I know that's a pretty broad question, but would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think the other big thing is that the kind of transfer that we have from the banjo being a black instrument, if you will, an instrument primarily played by people of African descent in the Americas, to being something that we associate with white America and white music. And that's really something that begins to happen in the 1840s with the explosion of blackface minstrelsy, where white men would paint their faces black and pretend to be African-American in a way that was derogatory and lampooning of African-American music, speech patterns, ways of dressing, you know, the, the whole thing was intended as comedy in a hurtful way. And that is really the first pop music craze of the United States. It is the first musical export, probably the first cultural export from the United States to the rest of the world. These blackface minstrel troops are not only extremely popular in the United States, but they travel to England, to Ireland, other places on the European continent, to South Africa, to Australia, to Japan, and really make the music of minstrelsy a global phenomenon. 
And the banjo is central to that blackface minstrel show because the banjo was so identified as being a black instrument, it becomes a prop that the blackface minstrels use to demonstrate their quote unquote blackness on stage. And so we get not only the kind of first pop music, the first American music export, but we also get the banjo going around the world as being this American musical form. Really think that from the beginning of the idea of what is American music, quotes around American music, um, we have the banjo as a central part of that. Even though minstrelsy was this pretty ugly export from the United States, there were Black Americans who performed minstrel songs and minstrel music. And this international craze actually gave them an opportunity to travel internationally as professional musicians and dancers. And so then it's not steps, they're not even leaps, the steps after that of having the banjo in another great American musical export of jazz, in having people all over the world be attracted to American country music, even if they're living in rural parts of far-flung countries, having this sense of, of connection to what they believe, the kind of longing that, that American country music brings, you know, the banjo is still very central to the creation of country music. So the ultimate argument is that we wouldn't have these kind of, that we wouldn't have American music to export around the world if we didn't have the banjo. Mm. Uh, but of course it comes from that very dark, pretty ugly place of the Blackface Minstrel Show to have created that first export. Fascinating. And I guess I'll, I'll leave you with this final question. I'm sure you address this a lot with people that you meet. And obviously you're an expert in this field. So, you know, I imagine a lot of folks are quite wrong when discussing the history, history of the banjo and, and sort of what would be your major teaching moment for folks who, who don't know anything about the origins. Is it in fact that it does come from an African or Afro-Caribbean origins? Or what would you say is the most, the one thing that people get wrong the most when when it comes to the history of the banjo? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I do think a lot of folks, they say the banjo is African, which I think I think that statement can be true. The banjo is African, right? It has these, these many African instruments. But the thing that's wrong to say is the banjo is from Africa, since it's, you know, fundamentally this creation of the African diaspora, as you said earlier, and created in the Americas by people of African descent. But then I also think that we like to imagine a world in which racism and white supremacy have not played the fundamental role that they have played in the creation of our country. And so we also imagine a world in which it's 1750 in Maryland and there's a poor white man and an enslaved black man playing the banjo together. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding, not only of the banjo and its purpose within Black religion and spirituality, but also the idea that that kind of cultural exchange was something that was normal. And it's not to say that, you know, there couldn't have been instances of that type of interaction, but that's not fundamentally where our history lies and where this musical history 
and this musical interaction happens. In a lot of ways, the banjo served as an early example of a tool for cultural diplomacy in a lot of ways, uh, which is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's a really interesting, coming back to the kind of export of blackface minstrel shows, again, absolutely awful and terrible as a art form. But at the same time, this was bringing a cultural form to the world from the United States in a way that kind of said, like, the U.S. has arrived, where we're a global force now. And there's a lot, I think, more research and more thought to be done and put into especially how those Blackface minstrel shows interacted with the campaigns for abolition, both in the United States, but also in British Caribbean colonies as well. There was a real fascination and interest with the Blackface Minstrel shows in Ireland, especially, and and just kind of thinking of, and in, in Australia as well, actually, and, and thinking about how those populations who were themselves kind of being colonized by the British reacted to this art form is also something that's very fascinating. Wow, really incredible. I want to uh, congratulate you on your your new book. I want to thank you for joining us for this podcast series and helping our audience understand the subject matter uh, a little bit more. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Culture Exchanges, a podcast that examines the impact of cultural diplomacy in its many forms on global relations. We'd like to thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for funding this podcast, our guest on this episode for taking the time to share their expertise, our podcast editor, Ed Bishop, and our listeners for taking the time to engage in the world of cultural diplomacy. 